Northern New York Community Podcasts, stories from the heart of our community. Hi there and welcome to another podcast that I can promise you will be one of the most memorable ones that we have. I'm your host, Max Del Signor. It is our pleasure to have one of the North Country's most impactful philanthropists, Mr. Richard McSherry, here with us. We will speak with Dick about growing up along the St. Lawrence River, developing a successful trucking business, and how his purpose for helping others came to be. And we're also joined by Dick's daughter, Molly McSherry McWade. Molly also grew up in Watertown in the Alexandria Bay area and is currently an active reverend at St. Philip's Episcopal Church in Jackson, Mississippi. And in fact, Molly was chosen as the state's first Episcopal, female Episcopal priest, I should say, in 1980. But her love for the North Country has never waned. And we're excited to have you both here and thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Welcome. Dick, at 98 years young, you are still quite active. You go, you go out in the St. Lawrence River as, as often as you can and you row your boat. What, what do you do on a daily basis to stay active? Well, I, I really, uh, I have one thing I have to do every day. I have to ride a stationary bike for at least probably a half an hour. And that gets, my, gets me going a little bit and gets me in shape to face another day of relatively easy nothing. <laughs> oh, gee. Now, now, rowing a boat, you row about three miles a day when you get a chance to go well, on the Well, not river? always, between two and three miles. This is in the St. Lawrence Skiff, which is a narrow a rowboat, double-ended boat, and um, uh, I love to have somebody in the stern. So, and there's a nice sh uh, chair made just for rowboats back there. Molly can sit in that, and occasionally I have my lady friend sitting back there, so I have something to look at when I'm rowing, because when you're rowing, you can't see where you're going. And of course, the easiest way to steer is to have somebody tell you where you're going. Well, I can row by myself, it's not any problem, but uh, you have to turn around and look where you're going. But with a good guide in the stern, I just keep right on rowing. The St. Lawrence River is, has been part of your fabric, your, your life story. Well, my family, uh, way back, owned a, a good-sized island on the St. Lawrence River and a small island. Both islands were connected with a bridge, and uh, it was a great spot to be brought up in because I could go fishing all the time. We had a sand bay where if I had to, I could go down and make sand castles and do things like that. We had a caretaker and his wife there all the time, year round, so there was always somebody. And that was a very pleasant bringing up for me. And so I kept doing that until the island was sold about 1980. And then I, uh, prior to that, I got, had gotten married, and uh, my wife was also a lady who lived on, on the St. Lawrence all her life. So when we got decided to get married, she uh, uh, gravely went to a little island that I owned, and uh, and found out when we had three children that. Uh, uh, little islands aren't the greatest places for kids because everybody thinks they're going to fall in the river all the time. <laughs> well, they do once in a while, so you have to watch them. And 
So then we moved over to the main shore where it was a little better, a little better protection for the children. Well, what makes the St. Lawrence River in the area so special to you? Well, to me, first of all, is pure water. A lot of people say, you know, well, look at those ships going through and they're dirty ships and stuff. But everything is required to have holding tanks and septic tanks and things like that. And I will drink the water out of the river anytime. Maybe if I had to like to get a little away from shore, but uh, you can see the bottom down probably 15 or 20 feet. And it's, it's, it's almost as clear as the ocean. And it's, uh, it's a wonderful place to be. The water is kind of cold in the spring, but in the summertime it's delightful for swimming and boating and any activity. When did you decide to settle in the North Country? You'd spent many summers up along the St. Lawrence River. How old were you when you settled here in, in the northern New York? Probably about uh, 28 after I got out of the service, yes. You were 28 years old, right? Well, I got out of the service about then, I think. How long did you serve for in the military? I served in the military till I was discharged before Iwo Jima. The day before Iwo Jima, I was discharged in uh, the Philippine Islands. Mm. What did that experience, serving for your country, what, what did that mean to you, or what, what did you take well, away from that? Uh, a little background here. I was working for a company in Philadelphia making naval guns and carriages for railroad cars. Then I decided I'd go to Canada and see if I could get a job with something called the British Purchasing Commission. Well, they gave me a job. But the day that I came back from Ottawa, Ontario, with the idea that I'm going to work for the British government, that was the day the uh, war started. So I didn't go to the commission. I went right into the Navy. And in the Navy, I ran a 50-foot boat for two years, uh, a landing craft. And that was fine, and fortunately I didn't get hurt, but a, a few people did, a lot. So my experience with the Navy was fine. I was honorably discharged, and uh, the day the, the bomb dropped on Iwo Jima. What are your first memories about settling in this area as an adult? Well, I knew the winters were going to be cold, <laughs> no doubt about that. I have been living in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We had a, uh, this island I lived on, we had a large cottage that was closed in the winter, but the, there was a cottage where the caretaker lived with his wife and children. And I, I decided to try to how, see how it would be. I went up there and stayed with him for two or three weeks and find out, well, I think I could handle the North Country. <laughs> so then I, came up here and uh, found a place to live. And, and then I, I was married now. So my wife and I lived here for 50 years. When did you meet your wife? When did you meet Mary? <laughs> <laughs> well, in days of yore, the Thousand Island Yacht Club 
was quite a central point of, of the river, of the social life in the St. Lawrence. My wife was the daughter of the Commodore of the Yacht Club, granddaughter, I should say. Mm -hmm. And every year he decided that it was necessary to have all the children assembled and have their pictures taken as a group. Well, I did that, and one day I was called to sit up to, to be there, and I was probably five years old, and this little girl came alongside and sat down beside me because she was told to, not because she wanted to. <laughs> uh, I smiled at her, and that was the first time I saw her. And then we got to, gradually got together later on. What, where did I should say the idea and motivation to start the Seaway Motor Express Company? Where did that come from? When I moved to Watertown, I didn't have a job. Well, I had been working for a marina in, in, in uh, Alexandria Bay. A man named Glenn Furness was a marine architect. And, uh, he had me open a marina in Ogdensburg, which I did, and for a good reason, because after the war, it was impossible to buy motors for boats. And uh, the fact that uh, I had been with a company called, um, in New Orleans. Higgins. Higgins, Higgins. And Higgins was given motors by the government because they had done a great job during the war making landing crafts and ships. Mm -hmm. So I was assigned to Ogdensburg to open up a marina and sell Higgins boats. And that was fine. So I spent my first winter up here in Ogdensburg. Then I was moved to Alex Bay and worked there for a while. And then uh, I decided to get married. So I stopped my job then and went on a wedding trip, came back, and uh, was sort of at a loss what to do. And a friend of mine said, I need a little help in the trucking business. So I worked with him for a while, and finally I, so I bought him out. And then I decided I, we had to expand or, or go broke. So <laughs> I uh, started buying some trucks. And I had a good luck with the bank. They were very kind to me. Would lend me money at a reasonable rate. And then I found out the best way to make any money was to pay cash for boats, so I started making money uh, for car, uh, trucks. And then I was in the trucking business, and I bought some property and built a terminal, built a repair shop, built a storage place, and it went on, went pretty well. How far was the reach, or how, what was the, uh, the area well, the for, whole, for your business? Well, the state of New York mm -hmm. to Albany, and then had New York City, too. How did the industry, or was the industry evolving at that time, with railroad being so prevalent in the country, and maybe more folks moving to more well, of the, the trucking the business? railroads, uh, yes, uh, but they turned out to be one of my best customers. And the reason for that was that um, railroads under the ICC were required to handle any 
any, any shipments. So there were, between here and Messina, for instance, New York, there were probably about five stations. And the railroad was required to service those stations when they had freight. Okay, so all of a sudden, the railroads found out that they were delivering 100-pound packages to a little, little station somewhere along the line. And just think about that. Then they have to take a railroad car, load it with this 100-pound thing, attach it to a locomotive, and deliver it to the station. And then a couple of days later, come back and get the railroad car. Very expensive, and uh, it, did, uh, it, it, it did what it was supposed to do. So I suggested to the railroad that they uh, might be sensible if we put some trucks on. So we had trucks marked by the New York Central Railroad pacemaker. And, and these went out every morning, about uh, seven or eight of them in different directions, delivering railroad freight. Well, we didn't have to leave the, car, the trucks there and uh, we could bring them back and we could do it a lot cheaper than running a steam locomotive up the track to some little station. So that turned out very well and I, I did a, the railroad finally decided that maybe it was not a bad thing to do so they bought me out, which was okay. <laughs> so that was the way I got started. What do you think were the keys to the success of your business during that time? Well, a lot of competition. Prompt delivery was the key to, to the uh, trucking business. But we also, we, really what we enjoyed most or what we profited most was by truckloads. And we, we finally, uh, connected with quite a few of the big companies like St. Regis and Aluminum Company of America, Reynolds Metal, and we would take, have truckloads every day in and out of these places. And that was lucrative. So that was probably the, the, really the backbone of my business that when it finally got going, that was what we wanted most. And that's what, what we, I had salesmen out, um, like many other business, selling for us, so that worked out. You and your wife were very engaged in this community, helping others in so many different ways. Do, do you remember when you first, as you got settled here in northern New York, do you remember when you first started to become engaged with nonprofit organizations or volunteer for certain agencies? Well, probably the first place I started was my church. Not that I was, I, I, I couldn't do a great deal for the church, but I used to work for them and I was also, I was a Sunday school teacher for a while. And uh, that was a uh, pleasant part of church business. And I got more involved with the church as time went on. Which church was this? Was it Trinity. Trinity Church, excuse okay. me. I have a few little, Memory losses occasionally. Your mind's still very sharp, I think. It is. <laughs> it I is. I couldn't remember the church I went to. That's <laughs> but you not, go to so many. That's not good, yes. Do you feel like church, in a lot of ways, provides some of those foundational values or principles of being able to go out and help others or the willingness to go and help others? 
Well, I suppose it did. I don't remember it necessarily doing that, but uh, and I I don't know what else did. So let's let's blame it on the church. <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, the church has changed a lot because uh, unfortunately we're getting. Older people are still going, but the younger people don't go anymore much, even though no matter what we do to try to attract them. And so now, you know, we used to have 10 or 12 Sunday school classes, and now it's diminished a great deal. But I still go to church. I had better go to church. <laughs> I have a daughter who is an Episcopal priest, and uh, I get very much reminded that Sunday you're supposed to go to church, so I do, and I like it now. One thought that you mentioned or something you had shared was you and your wife being married for 50 years, you did a lot together. We did. How, how important was it to, to volunteer and be so active in the community to do all of that together? Well, she was active. I don't think I was terribly active. My business took a lot. And, uh, you know, we did talk things over and do, do, do what we could. Mm -hmm. And she was in several groups that were philanthropic and uh, uh, I was very proud of her, and she uh, was well recognized as a uh, important participant in in uh, various philanthropic ways. Are there a couple examples or memories, or one or two that stand out in your mind of things that your wife had done that you felt proud of, or you felt proud of doing together? Well, she. Uh, well, that's a question I really have to think over. Well, can I yes, jump yes. in? Please. Well, I, I remember as a very young girl going with my mom, um, delivering meals with the Meals on Wheels program. And I was, I mean, I was just a little girl. And she would take me and the, the meal and deliver it to whomever it was we were helping and she was so kind not only did she just did she present the meal to the person or the family but she would stop and talk with them and see how they were doing and see if there was anything else she could do for them and and that stuck with me i mean i mean i still it's still very much with me now so i remember that as a little girl one of the questions I had for you, Molly, too, was to dovetail off your comment, what other examples or values stand out to you as you, look at, as you reflect, I guess, upon what your parents have done to help others over their lifetime? I don't remember a time when, when they didn't help the community. I mean, I, re I remember being at home with my mom and Pop going out and he did a lot, as he said, for the church, for Trinity Church, a great deal. And um, he was involved in all aspects. He was my, you were my Sunday school teacher one, one year, which was fun. <laughs> He's hilarious, so it was a lot of fun. Always looking for places where they could be of help. 
whether they had a lot of money at that point or not, that wasn't, that wasn't the deciding factor. They looked around and saw what the Salvation Army was doing and the United Way was doing, and they wanted to be a part of that. And I just, I remember all of that clearly. Dick, how important is it to share the value of helping others with your family? It's, it's obviously made an impact on your daughter. Well, I try to encourage them to uh, get involved in community affairs. They did somewhat, but the, my two sons moved away when they got old after they finished college, and uh, uh, they couldn't very well do much up here at that time. The one of them lived in New York, the other guy lived in uh, Tennessee, that's right. Where, if you could, I, mean, I know it's kind of hard to describe, and you talked about it a little bit in your story, but those, those values, the willingness to help, if you could go back to a point in your time where you felt that was the moment where you understood how important it was to help others, when would that be? I really can't specify a time that I started getting really involved in trying to help others, but uh, it, it was after I'd, uh, after I'd seen some situations where were, were disturbing to me because people needed help and weren't getting it. And I can't specifically tell you what, what date that was or even where it was, but I know that does concern me always. Can you share one of the stories that you remember, just that stood out in your mind? I'm trying to think back. See, I got a long way to go back. Yeah. You got to be 98 <laughs> years old. <laughs> You've been around a while. Yeah, and, uh, yeah I, I had a man working for me, and uh, he was old enough to retire. He did retire while they were working. He, 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 he was a poor, poor man and worked very hard for me and uh, he retired before his old age and his wife was somewhat ill. So I helped, uh, helped him with a house, by getting a house and uh, I, made, I, I paid a pension to him, which I was not required to do, but I, I started doing that for him and I felt pretty good about that because he was a deserving guy and uh, poor and not uh, with no resources at all. You and your family have been generous supporters to a number of local nonprofits. The library in Alexandria Bay is one that's very close to your heart. And I know you'd mentioned previously in a conversation we had about its progress. Now, why has the library meant so much to you? Well, first of all, our little town of Alexandria Bay had a library. And it was, uh, it got a little larger and they bought a house next door. And they had a passageway between the house next door and the library. Well, it was very difficult for, we only had one librarian, I think, most of the time, to try to see what was going on in the other house. I don't mean to say there's any hanky-panky stuff, but <laughs> the uh, librarians always keep an eye on people and the uh, young children and things like that. So the, I noticed, I've forgotten what year it was, it was probably around 1980, I think, or earlier maybe. Um, the city 
Alexander Village decided to build a new city hall and fire department together. Well, I saw the building going up and uh, there was a big lot next to the building. So I went to the mayor, who was a lady, and I said, look, I want four acres. What for? I said, I want to build a library. Are you sure you're going to do it? I said, I, I am sure. So she said, all right, you take the land. She gave me the land, or gave the library the land. I didn't want the land. And uh, we started building the library. We built one section and found out that it was doing very well. We needed more room. So we built another section and we built a computer room with, not a big one, but only got 10 or 12 computers in it. And then after that, the library was doing well and we needed a bigger space. So we, we, we built a uh, public room that we used for a lot of different purposes. And that uh, had turned out to be, we have art exhibits, we have all kinds of programs, we have oil painting programs, we have uh, reading, and we have a children's hour every week and get a, quite a few young children. We have a great girl who does specializes in that and she does a fine job. And children are coming in and out all the time. And, uh, that, that uh, is one of the goals that I had. I really, did, it wasn't a goal because I didn't know it could be done. I mean, I didn't know much about libraries except that I thought we needed one. And it has grown and it's rated as one of the best small libraries in the New York State. Your willingness to see that project through and to make that happen to strengthen a local institution like a library yeah. obviously meant means a lot to that area. Well, I hope it does. <laughs> How important is the concept of philanthropy? And not just a financial gift, but volunteering, giving your time and your talent. How important is that to this area's future? I don't like the word philanthropy very much. It, it, it indicates something large and glorious and magnanimous and stuff. I don't think of that. I like, I just do what I think is just plain sensible giving without any idea of any return to me. Mm -hmm. As long as it's, if the, as long as the donations I've given to anything uh, are well used. And that, that seems to be the way I look at things and it may be a little juvenile to talk that way, but when I see a need or I see somebody in trouble. I mean, I put quite a few children through college, too. I like to do that. And I picked a couple of them off the street. What are you doing? What grade are you in? Well, I'm in the ninth grade or whatever the top grade is. What are you going to do? Well, I'd like to go to college, but I can't afford it. And I really gotten a lot of pleasure out of that and got a lot of uh, good responses from the people I'm trying to help. Molly, is there another local project, charitable effort that your father or your parents have supported that sticks out in your mind or you feel was, was profound or made a difference in the area? They, well, actu actually, both my mom and dad were interested in um, the hospital here, for one thing, Samaritan Hospital. 
and all of the services it provides for the North Country. And also, they were very interested in hospice. The hospice that was built fairly recently. And when my mom died, um, Pop continued with that interest. Uh, he found out what specific needs were to both the hospital and the hospice, gave large donations to both, and the donations have turned out to be just, uh, I mean, the, the result of the, the donation turned out to be just superb, just wonderful, and helping in the quality of life of the people that, that the hospital and the hospice serves. So. If you could look back, I kind of asked this question earlier, but I'll phrase it a different way. Um, the lessons that your parents have taught you, what are maybe the one or two things that, um, as you practice as a reverend in your church in Mississippi, that you've kind of carried through your mission um, and, and with those parishioners that in your church? The major lesson that I have learned is to never stop giving. Because in giving, you receive so much more in your own life. And so the churches I've served in Mississippi, um, in terms of the parishioners, I've, I've listened, like Pop does, I've listened about what the needs are in the community and you know, you can imagine, in Jackson, Mississippi, there's a lot of need. And have gotten the parishioners, or helped the parishioners see the vision of giving to the greater community, not just stick with the church community, but the greater community, and reach out and um, be part of ministries that help people who are poor or sick or hungry or homeless or just vast needs. And I, I learned that from both of my parents, but particularly Pop, really. Um, you never stop. You just don't stop. He doesn't stop. He, he helped somebody this weekend who just came across his life and he helped them, so. It's very inspiring to me. He is. I want to give you one specific interest that I really get a great deal of satisfaction. It's the Salvation Army. I didn't realize their need much, and I, did, I couldn't do a lot to help. But one year I, I, I did uh, decided just before Christmas to take in a check for $5,000. The uh, major in charge was a lady, an older lady. And uh, she said, uh, well, that's going to help us a lot. So the next year, I did the same thing. And I think I gave him a little more. And she said, now look, would you like, I want to take you out for lunch. I said, I don't want to go out for lunch. I want to stay here for lunch. Mm. So I had dinner, a luncheon with, with all the uh, people who they served and then she said, well, I want to show you something. Well, she had a big gymnasium. And uh, 
the gymnasium floor was completely covered with small bags of candy, clothes, toys, toys, and I was so impressed to think that Watertown has so many people in need and so many children who don't have much else. And uh, I, I don't mean to particularly point out that that is the only uh, institution in town that helps people. It isn't. But I've started going back there quite a lot, and uh, it is a source of pleasure for me to uh, see what's going on, see who's helping who, and who needs help, and the people that have meals. And I sit down with them, and they aren't what you call gourmet meals, but they're healthy meals. And the, the people come in, some of them don't say anything, just come in and eat and leave. Because uh, I'm sure they're needy, and the Army, I think, recognizes who is needed, in need. And that's my... That's my pitch for the Salvation Army. <laughs> <laughs> they will be grateful, I'm sure. <laughs> your generation, and many in your generation, have demonstrated that the active approach, proactive approach, really, of helping their community. How critical is it to educate the younger generation about what it means to help others in need? How do you do that? I'm not sure how you would do that. If you don't do it at home, probably the schools are not going to teach that. I don't mean they, they'd be against it, but I, it might not be in the curriculum for that particular grade. Or so I, uh, it, I think it's up to the parents who've seen the need themselves and maybe had their own needs helped helped by someone else to teach the children the importance of giving and, and uh, organizations like the United Way who help a lot of people. Molly, as we wrap up, I want you to complete the following two sentences. They're very easy. The first one starts like this. Richard McSherry is, I want you to fill in the rest of that sentence. Richard McSherry is giving, inspiring, imaginative, uh, forward-looking, very bright, very bright, funny, 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 humorous, quick-witted, generous, obviously very generous, encouraging, Ageless. Well, we're going to run out of that pretty soon. <laughs> no, you're not. Got another 20 years, Pop, at least. You want to see a dried up prune? Come back in 20 years. I'll be with you. Um, you want me to give you this? Loving. Loving. So here's the second sentence The legacy of Richard and Mary McSherry will always be. The legacy is the result of their um, desire to give, ability to give, appreciation to be able to give, joy in giving, 
and um, you can put this somewhere in there, but varied giving. It's not all one type of giving. They give in various ways and their legacy will will be also will be that they have given to large organizations and to individuals in need and everywhere in between. Last question for you, Dick. If you had a classroom of high schoolers in front of you and you had a message to share with them, to inspire them to help others in their community, what would you say is the most important message you would share with that group to encourage them to do so? I would tell them education is the key to a successful life. If you're educated, you can, you'll probably be paid a reasonable amount of money to keep yourself going and maybe your family. You must be educated if possible or look for ways to get help to get educated. It can be done. And then I would say that uh, if you're being helped by someone, don't forget to help someone else. Do it in return. You may be a little later or many years later, but do it because people need your help just as much as you needed theirs. And I want to say two words that he says to me every time we speak on the phone. The last two words he says is, carry on, carry on. Well, Dick, I hope you always know how special and thoughtful your willingness to help others in this region has meant. Uh, thank you for being a model for all generations on how to help others and be devoted to the community. Well, thank you. And Molly, thank you for being here to share an additional perspective on your father and your family, as well as your values. It was a tremendous privilege and honor to have this opportunity to ask these questions and visit with you both. Thank you, Max. Folks, that's it for another edition of the podcast. Many thanks again to Mr. Richard McSherry and Molly McSherry McWade for sharing their stories on this platform. Again, this production isn't possible without the help and support from WPBS-TV and the Northern New York Community Foundation. Please continue to listen for more stories about our community on the podcast. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll catch you back here soon. Northern New York Community Podcasts, stories from the heart of our community.